In John chapter 6, after reading of Jesus feeding the 5,000, verse 13, it says, Therefore they gathered them up and filled the twelve baskets with fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Another path was shown Jesus. He could have let them make him king, but that was not God's path. Think about Matthew chapter 4. Satan had already tempted Jesus twice. And then verse 8 reads, Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus says, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. The devil, devil leaves, and the whole angels came and ministered unto Jesus. Jesus would not take the shortcut. He maneuvered his way of obedience unto the cross, and he did not diverge from that way, despite that way being one of a lot of pain and turmoil, hardship and suffering. He trusted God, he trusted God's timing, and he walked in God's way of obedience. If we go 14 generations prior, we come to David. 1 Samuel 23. Right in the midst of David being on the run, King Saul's trying to protect what he believes to be his kingdom, his kingship, and he's trying to kill David. David's a threat to his kingship. David's just rescued the Israelites of Keilah, but yet they still betray him to Saul. And so here is Saul pressing upon David, but God's divine providence protects him. And then he goes back out into the wilderness, and Saul can't find him. But Jonathan can, and that's interesting in and of itself. God was present, protecting his anointed. But listen to Jonathan's words. He provides a, a vision of assurance and encouragement to David. He says, do not fear for the hand of Saul. My father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Even my father Saul knows that. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed in the woods, and Jonathan went to his own home. After this, more Israelites, the Israelites of Ziph, the Ziphites, they betray David to Saul and gets in a situation where you have David's men, his 600 on one side of the mountain, Saul and his thousands on the other side, and they're encroaching, about to capture David, and here comes the messenger to let Saul know the Philistines are raiding the land, and Saul has to draw back. He has to leave. More divine protection. But when Saul returns, he gets word, so more Israelites that are willing to surrender David unto Saul. And this is the situation where David and his men are already tucked into the cave or a cave in the wilderness of En Gedi. And Saul comes in and is in a very vulnerable position, relieving himself. And David's men say to him, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as that seems good to you. And that was tempting. Could have killed him right then and there. And all that struggle, all that turmoil, the hardship, the difficulty would have seemingly in man's eyes been gone. He would have been king. 
in man's eyes. David was tempted, but he didn't take the shortcut. Matter of fact, we know he cuts the edge of the robe. In and of itself, that bothered David based on the symbolism of what the robe meant. But Saul leaves, and after he's gone away, David comes out, and he says these words, Let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. A couple chapters later, David once again has the opportunity to let Abiashai drive the spear into Saul's head and be done with it. And that time, David doesn't even hesitate. No. David will not diverge from God's way in God's time. Despite the hardship, the difficulty, the trials, we're going to do it God's way. Trust and obey. God's way in God's time won't always be easy, but it'll be worth it. Now, we could go 14 generations prior and we could come to Abraham and we could see him and the way that he trusted and he obeyed God. And when we consider the examples of Abraham and David, we realize they're not perfect. We see some of their mistakes, but we relate to that. We certainly understand that. But we see someone whose heart, that lodestone within the heart of their compass was overwhelmingly pointing towards trusting and obeying God. And we should be drawn into that example. Follow God's way. Trust him. Trust in his timing. And in time, it will be worth it. Now, reading and studying through the minor prophets in the recent months, there's been a pattern or a theme that's kind of shown itself in looking at Israel during those times. They were heavily influenced by the nations around them. Their beliefs, their paganism, their false gods, even their worship, their way of life. And it seeped into their hearts to where they desired to be more like the people around them than they had a desire to belong to God and to be faithful and to trust in God's way. And so we see them becoming like those people around them. Idolatry rampant. And though they, they, at times they had been extremely blessed by God and had affluence, had comfort, had luxuries, they didn't attribute that to God as his blessings. They didn't thank or honor God despite being very blessed. Instead, they were very prideful and arrogant about these things. And of course, that led to entitlement and a, a very nasty form of this stubbornness and disobedience. And they were adulterers. After all God had done for them, they wouldn't honor him. They wouldn't thank him. They wouldn't walk faithfully before him. But yet God did not give up on them. It's a beautiful picture within the, the study of the minor prophets. He continued to love them. If you look at Joel chapter 2, you drop into that prophecy, there's this horrific judgment that's already occurred and another judgment that's, that's supposed to come that's going to be even worse. As we kind of come to the end of that rendering, verse 11 says, For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? And when we read some of those verses and passages through the minor prophets and read of these judgments, it was a horrible thing. But we also come to the understanding that God did not desire that for his people. He did not want them to have to suffer those things. Look at verse 12. Now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me 
with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and He relents from doing harm. Who knows if He will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and nursing babies. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priest weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach that the nation should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? God predetermined that he would have a people that would belong to him. He's desired us before the creation. He loves us. He will not give up on his people. But he will not force us to obey him. And the scriptures are very clear. There are consequences when we reject God and we do not follow his way. Now, there are people today that would say things that maybe on the surface might sound good and, and maybe true, but the scriptures would overwhelmingly show these things to be falsehoods. They may say that God is love and that God is kind and that there is no judgment, that God would put what's right in your heart. And that's the, why, the reason why you feel that way and you reason that way and you should just follow your heart, trust your heart and live that truth. And many in Israel would follow ideas such as this, and as we said, he didn't want them to have to suffer these terrible judgments, but God is righteous. He's just, and therefore he must execute justice. If we refuse to walk God's way, there's judgment. And we will have to suffer unnecessarily. Just as Israel had to suffer unnecessarily for rejecting God and his way. Now come with me. This will be our, our final destination as we come to our final conclusions to the book of Romans. In chapter 1, beginning at verse 18, it reads, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, since what can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them. From the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have clearly been seen, being understood through what he has been made. As a result, people are without excuse. Looking at verse 17 and preceding, we see that Paul tells us God's righteousness has been revealed through the gospel. Of course, the good news of Jesus being ruler of all things, but in revealing that God is faithful to his word in regard to saving the world, saving the righteous. There's another side of that coin, for if God is, is faithful to save the righteous, vindicate the righteous, then my necessity, God is going to be faithful also to judge all of the ungodliness and unrighteousness as well. The gospel, of course, reveals Jesus' deliverance from sin, but it also reveals Jesus as the judge, as he has all authority and rules over heaven and earth. So in the same message, we see God's wrath being, has been revealed, but we also see that contrast between God's righteousness and the unrighteousness of the people, the unrighteousness of myself, of you, 
God has been faithful, but we have been unfaithful. God has kept his word and his covenant, but we have not. God has been just, fair, and right, but we have not. So in summation of that part of the passage, God's wrath has been revealed. His wrath is real and stands against our unrighteousness. God's righteousness demands that God is just and execute justice. Now, as we continue to read verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so today as we look around ourselves and we see a culture that descends deeper into foolishness, debauchery, and darker and darkerness, and we see things like the devil being openly promoted, sin being praised, we will not allow ourselves to be drawn into that futile thinking and into those futile ways and allow our hearts to be darkened. Brethren, we must be stubborn in a good way, with a determination, despite our circumstances, that we will follow God's way. We will trust in God's way in the way that we saw Jesus, in the way that we saw David, in the way that we see heroes of faith through the scriptures that trusted in the reward and the promises and that they knew that God was faithful and determined to be faithful as well. So we must honor God and give thanks to God. And when we are before God, the only appropriate response is worship. Consider our lives. If we would put on the wisdom of God, then we would fill our lives with thanksgiving. We would walk unashamedly in God's way. We would speak his truth in love. And like David, our foremost desire would be to please God and to do God's will. Whereas when we contrast David with Saul, Saul's foremost desire was his reputation before the people, his desire to please the people. When you look at Israel, many of them struggled with the influence around them. They let that influence take their heart. And they did not desire God above all of the other influence. And they allowed themselves to become like that which was around them. But we cannot make that mistake, not us. We must be faithful. We must keep our eyes upon our example, Jesus Christ, and the word that has been revealed to us and trust in it. Not look for the shortcuts that Satan would present us. Simple illusions of what we think that we may want in the moment, but actual paths of destruction. Trust in God's word and his promises, God has been faithful. And in time, he will reward those who are righteous and faithful. He says that in 1 Samuel chapter 23. He says it again in Luke chapter 6. God is the same then as he is today. He will reward the righteous and the faithful. But we are going to have to trust and obey. We need to bring worship into our everyday lives. Let our families in the home see us pray. 
and worshiping God every single day, carrying a mind and heart with a worshipful attitude, adoring and honoring God in all things, being mindful of God in all things with an eternal perspective. Let our neighbors see people that are unashamedly proclaiming Jesus and looking to God's word in all facets of life. See people that are trying their very best to walk in righteousness and when they make a mistake, will humble themselves before the mistake and make it right. We'll pay restitution, we'll apologize, we'll do whatever it takes to put themselves back into the good graces of God our Father. Because we make mistakes, just like David, just like Abraham. And even when we don't feel like it, we must not allow ourselves to be governed by our feelings. Another one of Satan's great schemes, get us wrapped up in our feelings rather than the truth. Govern us and push us about by our feelings rather than what we know. And so even when we don't feel like it, go to God in prayer. Worship God. And repentance will come to us. God will forgive us because he is faithful, because he loves us and he has desired us from the beginning, from before the beginning. He has desired us and he has made a way for us. But it's his way. It's not our way. As we continue to read in first chapter of Romans, we come to verses 24 through 32 and it becomes very clear about those consequences as far as rejecting God and for sin. Those consequences for refusing to walk in God's way. Romans chapter 1 verse 24 beginning, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. But listen to the same idea in Psalm 81 verse 11 in speaking of Israel. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. Notice that God gave Israel over to their own wishes, their own desires, so that they could follow their stubborn hearts. He will give us over to our seemingly own wisdom and our own ways. He will not force us to obey him. He will let us go our way. He will let us trailblaze our own path. We can do things our way. But there are consequences. Verses 28 through 32, we read of them being filled with all manner of unrighteousness. And listen to the list. Evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, and not only practicing these things, but giving approval to those who practice them. But brethren, not us. Stubborn in a good way. Know God. Honor God. Give thanks to God. Trust and obey God. We must refuse to exchange the glory of the immortal God for that which is of no profit, quoting Jeremiah 2.11. Israel exchanged the glory of God for that which was no profit. It's foolishness. But when those shortcuts are presented to us and those emotions 
are running rampant sometimes. It might not appear as foolishness, but that's where we have to be grounded. We have to have the word of God ingrained in our minds and hearts so that we see clearly. The illusion is pulled back and we see the path of destruction. And we don't step into the seemingly shortcut to what we think we may want in that moment. Trust God. We know that he will reward the righteous and the faithful, but it's his way in his time. Just as Satan came before Jesus himself, taking him up on the high mountain, all these things I will give you. You don't think Satan doesn't put things before us that he thinks that we would desire? If you will just fall down and worship me. If you will just do what you want. Follow your way. Do what you want to do. There's no judgment. Then you can have it. But Jesus said, away with you, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And the angels came and they ministered unto Jesus. Us the same. With our eyes on Jesus. Right? Our hearts filled with the word of the Lord and our love for our Savior. Understanding all that's been done for us and being grateful and thankful, honoring him in our daily life, worshiping him in our daily life. Our heart is filled. There's no place for Satan in our heart and our mind. But see, this is not going to happen by accident. Accident. We have to manifest and work to build this type of discipline into our lives. So Satan's schemes will not work against us. In Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 16, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. We will live by faith. The psalmist wrote in the 71st Psalm, beginning in the first couple verses, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. The psalmist wrote in the 98th Psalm, the first two verses, O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Isaiah 46, 12 and 13. Listen to me, stubborn of heart. You who are far from righteousness, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. In Isaiah 56, 1, thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my deliverance will be revealed. Studying through the minor prophets and seeing Israel, we come to understand and know for sure that there is no sin greater than God. Even Jesus' disciples asked him in regard to sin and salvation that how can man be saved? Well, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. We serve a great God, a God that is full of love and wants us to belong to him. 
but we can't do it our way. He is a just God, and there is judgment, and he will execute justice. But that judgment would be suffered unnecessarily if we would just choose the path of wisdom, the path of light, and ingrain within our minds and hearts the word of God and walk in faithfulness then we know he will reward the righteous and the faithful, but it will be in his way, in his time. All that we may choose to go through as far as hardship, as far as trials, those things in time, it will be worth it. And we know this to be true. But when those moments come in life, we have to be grounded, our mind and heart ingrained upon the truth so the illusion does not trick us. Bringing our last thoughts back to verses 16 and 17 of Romans 1, the gospel is God's power. What Jesus is is the Christ and what he has done is God's power for salvation and it is available to everyone who believes. It's not just to the Jew alone, but God has made Jesus master, made Lord and Savior of the whole world. There is not a class of people that cannot receive salvation, but they won't receive it their way. It has to be God's way. So salvation doesn't come by mental assent intellectual agreement or by just saying yep I believe that there's a God God has been faithful he's been faithful in his word and in his promises he will be faithful in that he will raise us up if we will submit ourselves in faith of his son Jesus Christ and in believing that Jesus is truly the son of God and being willing to turn from our waywardness and submit ourselves into his way to learn of him, to put his teachings into practice and to try to conform ourselves into the image of God's son and to be baptized so that we can die to our sins and let God raise us as he has cleansed us of those sins. This morning, if you have been wayward, you can be raised and walk in newness of life, born again, a part of a new family, God's family. And in that family, you can rest assured that your reward will come. But you have to do it God's way in God's time. If that invitation strikes you and strikes your heart, please come forward as we stand and sing.